have to tell you, though, I'm nervous. I have not done this in a very, very, very long time, never before in this congregation at all. And, um, yeah, I'm nervous. <laughs> it's a big responsibility to, uh, to give the word and to present the word. And so I don't take it lightly. Uh, we're going to be this morning in the book of Ruth. And as you turn to the book of Ruth, um, we'll be chapter 1. We're just going to start in the beginning. Um, I'll tell you that uh, this, well, this morning, Jacob Vetter and I were talking, and uh, I was telling him something that happened last night. Um, my wife asked me, Miranda says, because she, she, she knew I was nervous. You know, she knew I'd been studying. She been knew I was doing all that. And uh, she says, uh, so what is your main point? Just make sure that you get that main point across. What is your main point? And I said, God is sovereign. That's my main point today. He's over everything. Which means, as I was talking to Jacob this morning, I realized, here I'm nervous, and I'm preaching that God is sovereign. I mean, you know, something is a little wrong with this picture. Uh, but in that, I mean, isn't that really kind of the way it is, though? We kind of live in that tension, you know? We, we know that he's sovereign, and, and we believe, and we look in our past, and we see all the things that he's done, and we know that he's working in and through us, and around us, and yet, we get nervous, you know? And that's where I find myself today, as I stand before you. So, I'm going to tell you another story before we start. Um, this is kind of, uh, well, if, if, if you know anything about the book of Ruth, then you know that the beginning of the story, verse 1, there's a famine. So I'm going to tell you, um, I have never been in a famine. I've never experienced that, but I'm going to tell you the story of the closest thing I've ever experienced to that. And it was around the time that we were becoming a part of this church. Um, and a couple weeks ago, maybe even earlier this week, it all runs together to me now, but um, Miranda says, look at my time hop. If you know what time hop is, if you don't, it's a thing on Facebook that shows you what you posted years before. And, and her time hop the other day was um, a picture of me uh, on my first day as a teacher at Clute Intermediate. Um, which brought back all, all, brought back all kinds of memories and all kinds of things for me, flooded me with, with stuff. But the main thing is the story that I'm about to tell you. When I was, um, well, around that time, I lost a job. And I went without a job um, for about a year, year and a half, somewhere in there. And it was tough. And it was the closest thing I've ever experienced to famine, um, which is why I'm telling you this. We were living, uh, you know, I, I was looking for a job. I was working as a substitute teacher as often as possible. I would take as many jobs as I could every day that somebody had a job opening. I was applying for it. I was teaching classes that I should not have been teaching in those days um, because I needed the jobs, you know. Uh, as a substitute teacher, it wasn't, I wasn't making enough to make our house payments or to feed my kids or to do anything. Uh, luckily, well, I shouldn't say luck. It's the Lord's hand, right? Uh, Miranda had a, had a job. Again, it's, it's not a full-time job, but she, we were able to bring in a little money there. And then with my substitute teaching, by God's grace, I don't know how we made it through that time. I really don't. If you look at the numbers and what we were bringing in and what had to go out, it doesn't add up. But the Lord is good, right? Um, I would not have been able to feed my kids if it weren't for the Texas Star Card, food stamps. Um, so 
we were provided for in many ways during that time. And the Lord did that. It wasn't the star card. The Lord is in charge of the systems that are in place, right? He's over our government as well. And so the Lord provided for us during that time in that way. One night, it was um, before Christmas. Um, actually, it was before Thanksgiving. Uh, I think it was the weekend before Thanksgiving. We are sitting at our house, and um, you know we didn't do anything in those days except sit in the house because we didn't have any money to do anything. So we're sitting in the house one night, and there's a knock at the door, and I go to the door, and I'm overwhelmed at what I see, which is a crowd of people sitting, standing on my front lawn. And those people are people from our past. People from different cities where, where we li- had lived and you know, been with those people. People from the church is who they were. And they showed up that night and they said, they were singing Christmas carols. Again, this is before Thanksgiving, so that was a little odd. Um, but they finished singing and one of the girls um, came up and handed Miranda a paper sack and she said, Steve, Miranda, we are here because we want you to know that you are loved and that, that God is, is providing for you and that we're here for you. And then they filed by us individually as families and dropped money into this bag. They said it's a wonderful life, right? If you've seen the movie, it's a wonderful life. That's what it was. And um, that night... Um, you know, of course, we invited them all in, and we had nothing to really serve them or anything, but um, God provided for that as well. Um, we invited them all in, and one of the guys that night, he said, Steve, we could have sent you the money, but these people traveled from all over Texas to be here that night. And he said, we could have sent you the money, but we wanted you to know that we got your back. We wanted you to know that we are here for you. That spoke more to me than anything else. It was, the money was great, and it helped us give our kids some Christmas gifts that, that, that year. But them being there for us was the most overwhelming thing. We cried many, many tears, right? Um, and yet, it was just beautiful. It was just beautiful. So I have to share that because that's the closest thing I've ever experienced to family. But what I want you to see in it is that the... The Lord provided for us in two main ways. He provided food for us, right? Through the Texas Star Card and through our government. And he was sovereign over all of that. So he provided for us through the systems that were in place. And he also provided for us our friends and our family through them. That's what we're going to see is the two greatest needs that are here in the book of Ruth as we start out. There's a famine, so they're going to need food, and then they're going to need family. And that's what we had that night. So that's why I thought I'd share that story. So, Ruth. I guess I should also say this. As I was studying, there's a a guy named Vodi Bauckham. Anybody ever heard of him? Sorry. I'm I'm much more conversational than most pastors, probably. Um, Vodi Bauckham was was speaking uh, on this, this very same passage, and he said this. This is a quote from him. Can you praise him in the famine? If not, have you ever really praised him at all? Or just given him a pat on the back because you got what you wanted? Can you praise him in the famine? 
If not, have you praised him at all? Or are you just patting him on the back, saying thanks? That really hit me. So, Ruth chapter 1. Um, this, by the way, Ruth takes place during the time of the judges. And uh, people are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. They're doing whatever it is that they see right. And, and it's just going crazy. So, so the Lord sends a judge, and the people rebel. And then the Lord sends a judge, and the people rebel. And it just goes over and over again. And in the midst of all of that chaos and all of that that's going on, we have this story about Ruth. So, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two children. Now, we don't know why this famine is here, but we know that most of the time in Scripture, famine happens um, as a way for uh, God's judgment. Um, we, don't give, we don't have any details scripturally, but we could guess that that's probably what's going on, especially because in Moab, where they're headed, is uh, only like 50 miles away. So it's kind of a localized famine. So the famine is happening in this area probably because of some sort of judgment. So um, they are in Bethlehem. By the way, Bethlehem means house of bread. So it's sort of ironic that the house of bread, the bakery, uh, there's a famine that's there. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So now we're introduced to our characters. First we have the setting in verse 1, our characters in verse 2. Um, Naomi, that name means pleasant one, my pleasant one, sort of sweetheart kind of thing. Malon means wick or seek, and Kilion, their children, is frail. So wick or, I'm uh, sorry, weak or sick. I said that wrong the first time too, didn't I? Weak or sick and frail. Why would you name your kids that? That's crazy, right? Most likely, the scholars say that most likely the reason that they called them that is, is because they were named after they were weaned and there was a famine that was going on. So they were named probably most likely as to how their condition was because of the famine. Elimelech means my God is king. Think about this. They're leaving to go to Moab because there's a famine, right? Where were they? They were in the land that God had given to the, to the Israelites. God had given this land to the people, right? And they were leaving it. Not only were they leaving the land that God had given them, but they were leaving the temple. And at this time, you know, worship was centered around the temple. And so they were leaving, in many ways, God himself to go to Moab, 50 miles away. I don't know about you, but this, this seems like a dangerous thing. Um, I'm not sure my God is king is truly what's happening here. Um, he, he's not following through with the, his namesake, right? He is doubting and not trusting. So he takes his family to Moab. Um, tragedy that he's leaving the family of God, right? I mean, 
what would life be like without the church for you? Without the body of believers, without the influences of godly people in our lives, what would our lives be like? That's where, that's where he's taking them. Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. Another tragedy. He dies. These took Moabite wives. Kids married Moabite women. Another tragedy. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her sons and without her husband. So now we have a foreigner, Naomi, in the land of Moab with no husband, no children, no nothing. I cannot imagine what that must have been like in a land where God's people are not at. It's sort of ironic to me that, I mean, Elimelech moved his family there so that they would survive the famine. And what happens is just the opposite. Just more and more tragedy. I used to be a youth minister. I did youth ministry for almost 20 years. And one of the things that happened often, I shouldn't say often, but semi-regularly, probably two, three times a year, I would get a phone call from a parent whose child was in trouble um, in rehab or in trouble with the police or something like that, something that was big. And these parents would call and say, Steve, can you go visit my, my son? Usually it was a son. Sometimes there were daughters, but can you go visit my son? He needs, he needs church. He needs to get better. He needs to you know, straighten out his life. And uh, I would go, and I would do my very best. But most of the time, these phone calls were from parents who were not real active in church, you know, kind of Christmas, Easter kind of Christians, um, or special events or things like that. The kids, when, you know, when they came into, uh, in, that, in that church, they, they came into the youth program as seventh graders. And those kids, in general, were pretty much just like their parents. I never really saw them in youth programs. So I never had any relationship with them. And most likely they didn't have a lot of relationships with anybody in the church because they weren't around. And so I would go and I would try to talk to them and try to you know, pray with them. We'd, I would do everything that I possibly could, but I had no relationship with them most of the time. And they had no spiritual foundation whatsoever. And so it made it really difficult those were some really trying, difficult times for me in youth ministry. And that is what Elimelech has done. He moved his family away from the church. We have to remain. Guys, you know, missing a Sunday here and there, I don't think there's anything really all that wrong with that. But we've got to be connected to the body of Christ. If we're not, we lose more than we even realize. 
you know, you may, you may come to church one Sunday and you feel like, ah, it was all right. But what you may not recognize and realize is that even when it's all right, there's relational things that are happening. There's smiles that occur between people that build bonds. There's little subtle things. God is at work, even though we may not recognize it. And when we move away from the church or we start, this is something that we're, we're going to have to deal with. When we start spending too much time at soccer games instead of coming to church, we are denying our children of those things. Um, we've got to not be Elimelech. We, in some ways, we need to be Elimelech. My God is king. That's his, what his name means. We need to be Elimelech in that way. But we, not, we need to not be like this Elimelech, right? Something I wrote in reflection of this. We must abide in Christ. If we are to have any real impact on our children, or anybody for that matter, we must abide in Him. When the famine comes, we must remain. We must abide. When our health deteriorates, we remain in Him. When we get a promotion, we remain. In the good and the bad, we remain in Christ. We continue to worship. We continue to continue. Keep on keeping on. Just keep swimming, right? We've got to be with Him. Verse 6. Naomi. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. God works in a couple of ways. He does miracles. Flexes so that everybody can see and nobody can deny that it was God. And then he works with his providence. He works in the subtle ways where he's behind the scenes working and doing things so that we can benefit and so that he can have accomplish his own will. It, not everybody recognizes those things, though. It takes a person of faith to recognize the subtle things that he's doing behind the scenes. His, providence, his providential hand is more difficult to see, but with faith, it becomes visible. So Naomi, she hears that there is food, but what does it say? It says, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She heard that the Lord did this. Not that they had good rains that year. Not that the crops were doing well because they didn't have any bugs. She heard that the Lord was doing this and recognized that and believed that enough that she would pack her stuff and head in that direction. This is, in spite of her circumstance, imagine how horrible she must be. And things are for her. Everyone has died. She's in a foreign land. And yet she hears and she recognizes and she has faith to move. This is God. Naomi's situation is, is very much like a homeless person. 
at this point. She's the bottom of the rung. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Naomi is, is sort of the anti-evangelist, you know? She's telling them, no, don't go with me to God, where God is. Go back home. She's the anti-evangelist, which is, I mean, we would never say that you should be this way, right? You're always supposed to invite people to come with you to God. She has nothing, and she's scared that if she brings them, it's going to be worse. But at the same time, I think there's something more to it. I think she wants them to count the cost. It's got to be their decision if they're going to go with her or not. And they need to recognize how difficult it's going to be. So she says, go back. They wept together. Of course they wept together, right? They've lost everything. These, these women have probably grown very close to one another. Not, not just, um, what, what is it, um, in-laws. These are not in-laws anymore. They've been through so much together. Their you know, family is family, right? So that's probably how they feel about one another. Verse 10, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. They've been, they've been through too much together. They don't want to leave. I can remember when I was in the sixth grade, my, my, my dad got another job. I lived in Oklahoma. We were going to be moving to Corpus Christi. And in the sixth grade, my parents tell me that we're going to move. And, you know, everything I had ever really known was in that little town, in that little house in Enid, Oklahoma. And I can remember the day we were moving, they were packing all the stuff into the truck, and we, we had a two-story house, and the banister of the stairs came right down by the front door. And I remember holding on to that banister, and literally my dad grabbed my feet, and he's pulling me, and, and you know, I've got the banister, he's pulling me, and I'm crying. I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave. I, I can imagine, um, you know, how this must be. We don't want to leave each other. We've been through too much together with you. They're telling her, we don't, we, we've got to stay with you. But Naomi, verse 11, said, Turn back, my daughters. Why, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say... If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you wait? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi calls them daughters because they are so close. She pleads with them to go home. And uh, she even says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So, so in some ways, she, she still recognizes that God is in control. Um, sort of a blaming sort of thing that's happening there as well. Um, but, but at least she recognizes that he is still in control. 
Um, it is Elimelech who brought her there, um, not God. God allowed it to happen. Which, by the way, that, uh, there's a lot of things here I don't understand. And I don't think I will ever understand until, you know, I'm, I'm with him. Um, there's a guy named, uh, let's see if I can get it right, Flavel? Anybody know how to say his name? He's an old dead guy. <laughs> um, I, I, I like to study some of the old, you know, fathers of the faith, and the, he's, he's one of them. And he, he, calls, he calls this a sanctified affliction. A sanctified affliction. There's, these are things that, you know, like they pass through God's hand, and he allows them, but he does not cause these horrible things to happen to us. And... And I don't understand how all that works because, because there are times when, when we can, I can look back and say, this was a horrible time, and yet God turned it later and used it for something else great in my life. A sanctified affliction is what Flavel calls it. I, I honestly, I just don't know how all that works. And, and I stand before you and say, it's faith, right? We don't have to understand some of it. If, if we understand God, he's not God. We can't understand him. His ways are higher than ours. We'll never get it all. This is one of those things. I don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, I, I would imagine that Naomi is saying these kind of things to God. I don't get it. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen? We just have to trust. And sometimes we ask, you know, we need to ask God, what is it you're trying to show me in this? What am I supposed to be learning in this? When, when I didn't have the job for all those, those months, those were the kind of things that I was asking. What am I supposed to be learning? Um, and, and I'll tell you the Vody Bauckham quote about, you know, did I praise him in the midst of it? Or did I just pat him on the back when I get what I want? I can say I tried. You know, we were still in church, and we were still coming, but it all sort of, inside of me, it sort of fell flat, you know? It didn't feel right. But I think that that's okay. I think sometimes we act in obedience and we praise him with our lips, even though our heart may not be quite there yet. We praise him and we, we push through and we do what he has called us to do. And I think he'll work in that and grow us to become more. Naomi, I mean, Ruth clung to Naomi or believes. She just gets up, she goes. But Ruth clung to Naomi. And the word that's used there is also found in Genesis 24, uh, to describe how a man and woman leave their families and cling to one another. So this is not just, you know, I, I, I want to stay with you. This is a deep abiding cling. This is me hanging on to that rail, you know. Um, although, although I was fighting against my father at that point, so that's not quite all right. Uh, verse 15, she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Verse 16, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. These are famous words. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God. 
my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. When Naomi saw how resolute she was, as she knew, there was no, there was no talking her out of it. This is the first time that Ruth actually speaks in the book. These words are used in wedding vows all the time. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Where your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Beautiful words for a wedding, right? But these words are not being said to, to a future spouse. These words are being said to the in-law, the mother-in-law. I've never heard anybody say those words to their in-laws. Have you? <laughs> It's a beautiful thing if, if you've seen it. It's a beautiful thing. And I will say my in-laws are awesome. I, would, I could probably say these things to them. Ruth was all in though, right? I don't know if you guys remember from history way back, uh, way back, you know, junior high for me probably, Cortez. Remember anything about Cortez? Came over to, the, to America and when he got here, he and his crew, they burned the ships. They burned the ships. Because when you get there, you know, you come to America, there's nothing here, right? You've got to start all over. He didn't want them to be tempted to, to get back on the ship and head home. So he burns the ships. That's kind of where Ruth is. I mean, she actually even says an oath. You know, as, she, as she's saying this, she says an oath that says um, she doesn't want to go back on it. May this happen to me. Where was it? May the Lord do so to me. Die. And more also, if anything but death parts me to you. So, so she's saying, I'm willing to die. Um, I, love, I love the fact, she says, you, your God will be my God. Ruth recognizes that Yahweh, I mean, they, there were Moabite gods as well, but Yahweh, Naomi's God, was God. And even at this point, she has already seen that. Let me read this to you. This is something I wrote as I was preparing. This moment is her conversion moment. Her choice to follow God is bold. Israelites don't like Moabites, and she's choosing to step into a new life in the middle of this tension. So she's willing to go into Israel, where, people, where she knows she's going to be hated. This is sort of like Rosa Parks choosing to remain seated on the bus. She's moving to a place where she knows she's going to be hated with no family, friends, job. This may actually be a greater example of faith than even that of Abraham. Even that of Abraham. He left his home and family and God to start over with Yahweh, but he had heard from God, right? He had heard from God, and he was taking all his stuff with him. She hadn't heard from him other than through Naomi. And she's walking away from it all, but he was going to a land where, where there, he wasn't going to be hated. She's, she's going into a place where she's even going to be hated based upon her knowledge of God through her mother-in-law. This is an incredible ex- example of faith. God is sovereign and he is good. He has the ability to take care of her he wants to do so. She recognizes all these things. 
It also is an example of um, what I'm going to call the second family. Um, I am, am blessed to have a wonderful first family. But that's not true for everybody. I know some of you may be in situations where you would rather be with your church family, your second family, than with your own family. And that's a heartbreaking thing. But at the same time, it's a beautiful thing that God has provided that. We have an incredible thing in the body of Christ. Um, This morning, I got text message after text message after text message from people saying, I'm praying for you. And to know that I'm supported that way is a beautiful thing. Um, when I had lost my job and it was the body of Christ that showed up on our do- at our, in our front yard that day. Um, when my son needed to have surgery a few years ago, I, I cried tears watching the children of our small group pray for my son before his surgery. The body of Christ is incredible. We have a wonderful family here. And I, and I will say, for if you are not connected with this church, GBC, I just want to say to you, this is an incredible place. And we have found truly family here. Um, and I hope that, that you will find that as well. Um, okay, back to where we're supposed to be. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? The women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter, daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi, if you remember, her name means pleasant one. And when she gets back to town, and everybody's talking, and they see her, they come running, and she says, don't call me sweetheart anymore. Don't call me pleasant one. Call me bitter. Because I'm bitter. This is, um, this is somebody that, you know, is upset with God. And you know what? He can take it. He's big enough. He can take it when you're upset with him. And, and there, there are those who would say, as I was reading different commentators on all of this, there are those who would say she was a horrible example to us. But I would also say, you know, this is a woman who has gone through a very trying and tough time, and she is running, I mean, not just, like, packed up her stuff, and she's running back to the people of God. And the first thing she does when she gets to the people of God is she says, it's like a confession almost, you know? She says, this is where I am. Don't call me, don't call me that anymore because my life is different now. And, and it doesn't say this in the scripture, but I, I mean, I sense that she's saying, I need some help. I need you guys. I mean, the fact that she's going back certainly communicates that, right? So 
it's a tough spot. But, and then she also says, you know, I, I went away with all this stuff. I had, this, I had my kids and my husband and all this stuff. And I come back and I'm empty. When she says she's empty, I just go, oh my gosh. Who's standing there with her? Ruth. What would Ruth have thought? How would that have made Ruth feel? Her mother-in-law is saying that she's empty-handed and Ruth is right there. The last verse of that, verse 22. So Naomi returned and the Ruth... And Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the country of Moab, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. What was that? What happened in the beginning of this chapter? Verse one: famine. Now they're here at the beginning of the barley harvest. So, so the the writer here, God, last verse of the chapter. There's a little hope. Right? There's a little hope there. There's always a little hope. There's always a little hope. Check the time here. All right, so um, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This is sort of a voiceover guy talking. You know, Ruth and and Naomi don't know that Boaz is, you know, even around. But the author is telling us that there is this guy. And I want you to know a little bit about him. So what can we tell about him here? He is a relative of Elimelech. So we know that. He's a worthy man, right? Um, Most likely he had some money. Um, the, the word that's used here is, is found in some other places. And it, it, it says, um, oh, where is it? It refers to men of war, men of wealth, and men of wherewithal. This is the guy who can get things done. His name, Boaz, means strength. Mighty man of valor is another phrase that's used uh, for his name. He is worthy of respect. This is a good guy. This is an incredible guy. And he is related to Elimelech, which means he's related to Naomi. Not to Ruth, but related to Naomi. Um, In Deuteronomy 25, verses 1 through 5, um, you need to know something about those verses. We're not going to turn to it. But basically, um, there is an idea of called the kinsman redeemer. And this is something that God laid out uh, for his people. If a man, Israelite, uh, was married and did not have children, and then he died, God set this thing up so that, so that his wife would be taken care of. And basically what would happen is somebody else from the clan, somebody from the family, the brother, was then required to, to take the wife... And then to have a child with that wife. And so that, so that his name would be carried on. And so when we read here that he is of the clan of Elimelech, 
Remember the barley harvest was a little hope? We're seeing a little bit more hope here for the situation. So they're not, well, they are all alone, but there is this guy that's out there. Verse 2, the Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Gleaning, this is something else that God had put in place. This is the Texas star card, right? Um, what would happen is this, is this is in Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, and then also Leviticus 23, 22. Um, the people who had fields, the people who were farmers and owned the fields, they, were, they would harvest the fields, but God had this system set up in place where the corners of the field they would leave alone. And they would let the poor people, those who needed the food stamps, so to speak, could come and could glean and get the grain that they needed and be able to survive. So as they come back in town, I mean, you know, a widow in, in this time in this part of the country, she had really nothing. And so, so Ruth says, I'm willing to work. I'll, you know, I'll put up my we'll work for food sign <laughs> and I'll go out and work and we'll get in the corners and we'll get some of this, this food. And so Naomi says, you know, go. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. She happened to be in the field belonging to Boaz. This was not luck or coincidence. God had invisibly guided her to this place, to this field. He's a, he's a God of providence. This does not mean that Ruth didn't have freedom of choice. It only means that God is sovereign and can use those choices to do his work. The poor, single, foreigner Moabite was brought by the hand of God to the rich, single, manly man relative of Naomi's field. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. This is, sort of, this is sort of the same thing. It just so happened that she went to his field. It just so happened that he showed up that very same day. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I think this is cool that when he shows up, uh, his greeting is the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. He had a relationship with the guys that he was, you know, that were working for him. And they, it seems to me like they've probably shared their faith with one another. You know, they're godly people out there working together. Again, it's not coincidence that Boaz, Boaz shows up on the same day. Notice how he treats his, his, his employees. They respect him. Verse 5, And Boaz said, Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. There's been talk around town. I mean, if, if, if he comes to him and says, Who is this? And the guy says... What was it said? She is the young Moabite woman who? I mean, that clearly, there's already been talk. Boaz already knows, you know, the young Moabite woman. He already knows 
who he's referring to at this point because he's probably heard the story, right? People are talking. There's gossip going around town about what's going on. Why is this Moabite woman here? And, and Naomi is back and, you know, all these things. Um, Ruth had a reputation. We don't really know what that reputation was, but they, she had one. Probably sort of mysterious. Like, they're kind of like, well, what's, you know, what's going on? Why is she here? Um, but Boaz, he saw something different. He saw her character. That day he was able to see her work ethic. Um, she happens to go to his field. He happens to show up that same day. He happens to notice her. He happened to have already heard about her. This is God's hand. This is not coincidence. The word happened makes me think coincidence. But no, this, that's not what this is. Many, many years ago, over 25 years ago, I was, um, I was going to school at Texas Wesleyan, and I was a music major at the time. And I was realizing that I did not, like I didn't really want to be a band director, and I, I didn't want to do like the performance thing in music. So I'm kind of thinking, what am I doing in music? And, and I, I, that's just where I was. Well, during that time, it just so happened that the choir director at my church signed me up for choir camp. I wasn't even in the choir. And so I'm like, what are you, why are you signing me up for this? Well, you got the summer, you can do this, and you know. So he talked me into it, so I went. So it just so happened he signed me up. We go, when we get there to the registration thing, um, they... They tell us that they've lost our registrations. It just so happened that he signed me up. It just so happened that they lost my registration. So you can't really come to choir camp unless you want to be a counselor with some, some kids down in the elementary wing. I'm like, well, I'm already here, you know. So I then say, okay, well, I'll be a counselor at the children's wing. So I go down. They assign me to this cabin. It just so happens that the kids who are in my cabin we're from a little town called Tomball, which is north of us here. Um, and during that time, uh, of course, I met some other people from Tomball, some adults who were working the camp. It just so happened that, that was, there was a woman whose name was Susan Bryant who um, I met there that knew the kids in my cabin. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about that. And it just so happened that they were looking for a youth minister. And it just so happened that after we... After camp was over, she went back and told the pastor about me. I was not really looking to do youth ministry at the time, but I was looking to get out of music program, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so it just so happened the guy calls me, the pastor, and I go down for an interview, and I get a job at a little church in Tomball as a youth minister. It just so happened that two years after that, the, I was in the Methodist church, and so they appoint their pastors, uh, the pastor who hired me left, and the pastor who came in was Miranda's dad. It just so happened I met Miranda. It just so happened we got married. So what I'm telling you is that if those guys hadn't lost my choir camp registration form that I didn't sign up for, I'd be a single guy right now, right? <laughs> no. No. 
this? I mean, but, but if you look back at it all, I mean, it does sort of hinge on that, right? In my own mind. This is God's hand of providence, right? This is how God works. When you're in the midst of, you mean you lost my registration? I got to work with little kids? You're feeling that. But God knows that's going to lead to something else, right? And uh, most beautiful gift other than Jesus in my life is right there because they lost my choir camp registration. <laughs> That's what's happening here. That's what's happening with Ruth. Uh, verse 7, I believe is that, where, is that where we are? I think so. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. She's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So, so the worker, the, the, the guy the, that's leading the crew, tells Boaz, she's a hard worker. I, I mean, think about this. She's been out there working all this time in her, you know, probably poor peasant clothes. She's sweating. She's got dirt all over her. And Boaz still notices her. I think there's something there. Um, when bad things happen, we recognize God's providence. But do we also see it as his provision? We recognize his providence when the bad things happen. We know he's still in charge. But do we really see it as him providing for us, his provision? Providence is one thing to, to say it, but to recognize it as, as provision is a whole other thing. Like, in the midst of the awful thing, we should be saying, God is doing something in me. He's providing something for me that, that I don't see. He's providing something for me. We should know he's always got our back, right? And it's a, it's a tough thing to see. Could it be that the tough situation you're in is providing you something else that you're going to need later? Could it be that these, those people looking at my camp registration was providing an opportunity for me to meet Miranda? Could it be that my year without a job was providing better stewardship skills for me? Maybe these rough times are actually God's provision. They're sanctifying us. Most likely, he's molding us and squishing us around and forming us into the people he's called us to be. It probably doesn't feel very good. You've probably heard it said before, don't pray for patience. Why? Because he might start working those muscles. He might answer your prayer and provide you with opportunities to grow in patience, right? It all ties in together here. Verse 8, Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean to another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz is over-generous, overly generous. He's providing a community for her. These friends, she's going to have even extra food because she's getting to glean in areas where it's not just the corners of the field anymore. He's saying, follow my girls. 
They're out there working. You can get more than just the corners of the field. This is not him fulfilling the law. The law was to let her have the corners. This is him offering grace. It's even more. He, 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 tells his, he tells his guys, keep your hands off of her. This is like sexual harassment policy here, right? You know, she's, he's saying, leave her alone. Uh, he recognizes her situation. She's still the foreigner who is hated in this, in this com- little community. And he is providing for her in huge ways. He acts as her, her protector, provider, defender. And then with the water, like she tell, he tells her to get water from the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. In this culture, it was the women who drew the water. The men draw the water here and he, she gets to drink from them. He's placing her, in, he's putting her in a place of honor. So he's going over and above here. Verse 10, she fell on her face bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? Since I'm a foreigner. This is a good question. She's like, you're offering me all this stuff. Is there something more that you want from me? I mean, what's, why are you doing this? This is a good question. Because she sees who she is, you know. Her qualifications from her perspective. She's from a pagan family. Lived in a cult most of her life. She's homeless. She's broke. She's dirty. She's got a crazy angry mother-in-law. She, it's a good question. Why are you being so nice? But Boaz answered her, verse 11, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you didn't know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. It's not because she's cute that he likes her. It's her character. It's her character. It's who she is. She's made these sacrifices. She's given her life to, to come to God's people. Verse 12 is sort of a prayer that he prays. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. The Lord, the God of Israel, who, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. This prayer, by the way, is going to be answered. And you know who's going to answer it? Boaz. He prays the prayer, and he's going to answer it later on, which we're not going to get to today. But I think that's the way it, it is sometimes. You know, we pray the prayer, and, and sometimes when we recognize a situation enough to pray about it, God then turns it back and says, so um, I need you to go take care of some of this, you know? So we have to answer our own prayers sometimes in when we pray those because he puts it on our hearts in that way. Verse 13, Then she said, I've found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. Verse 2, she was saying, I'm, I'm going to need favor. She, she, when she was going out into the field and she, you know, like the first time, you know, she's saying, I, I'm going to be the foreigner out there. This is going to be a dangerous spot for me to be in. I'm going to need favor. 
And then here, after, after she arrives and meets him, she says, I have found favor. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's for me today. I, I come up saying, I'm, I'm nervous. And now here I am, and I'm in the midst of it, and the nerves are kind of settling, right? She's found the favor she was looking for. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not even one of your servants. She calls him my Lord, by the way, which that's, you know, I got to make him feel good, right? Um, the word she uses here for servant is like the lowest form of that word. She's going to use the, use the word servant of herself later on in the book, but it's a higher form of it. So you kind of see her self-esteem growing as, as the book goes on. Verse 14, and, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. He serves her dinner. He actually serves her himself, a Moabite at the table. This would have been a pretty big deal to have a Moabite at the table at all. It's the most intimate people in our lives that we eat, eat with, right? And the Moabite is there. And not only is she there, but he is serving her. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So he's, give her extra. He's leading his men. They're following he makes sure that she's going to be able to gather as much grain as she needs, even more than the law requires. Verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what, what she had gleaned, and it was about an ipa of barley. That's about 30 to 50 pounds, equivalent to two weeks of wages for the average worker in those days. And she took it up and went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So, so you know, Naomi doesn't really know anything at this point about Boaz. Um, she just sees Ruth coming home with all this food. And she's like, oh my gosh. You know, the beginning of the day, we were destitute. Now at the end of the day, we've got, like, a lot of food. You know, there's going to be leftovers. 30 to 50 pounds. Two weeks worth of stuff in one day's worth of work. So she's ecstatic that the needs that, these pe that they had at the beginning, food and family, right? So now the food is, is provided for. And so she, she has no idea where she was. And so she says, well, gosh, you know, whose field was this? She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Na Naomi's even more ecstatic now because, because, you know, this tragedy after tragedy that she'd been experiencing, it's like the barley harvest. There's a little hope. She sees that it's Boaz, and she knows, as it says here, uh, Naomi, Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. So Ruth doesn't even know this, Right? So Naomi is informing Ruth, and now Ruth is like, oh my gosh, the tragedy is now, could be fairy tale, right? 
could be fairy tale. It's headed in, in this crazy, cool direction. Naomi's bitter. Remember she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter. In this moment, that begins to change. She starts to see something a little differently. She recognizes that God is still God. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. So he told her to keep coming back. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this young, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So they recognized the situation. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. She lived with her mother-in-law. If it continues the way that it's gone this first day, in six weeks, she will have collected a year's worth of grain. Boaz has provided more food and protection and community than, than they would ever need. Ruth remains faithful to this little community. At this point, the story kind of kind of uh, gets quiet, and then chapter 3 continues, which we're not going to do today. Um, maybe another day when, when I'm supposed to be up here again. Uh, but I want to finish it out this way. We are like Ruth. In our relationship with God, we're foreigners, we're pagan, we're idolaters, we're spiritually poor, we're empty-handed, empty we have nothing to offer Him. We're needy. However, like Boaz, Jesus has been kind. He's provided for us, protected us. He's given us community, even life itself, by dying on the cross for us. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, calls Jesus our glorious Boaz. Jesus is our glorious Boaz. Another preacher says this, As Boaz came to survey his field, Jesus came to survey his field, the earth. As Boaz looked out and saw Ruth, so Jesus has seen us. As Boaz pursued Ruth, so Jesus has pursued us. As Boaz spoke to Ruth kindly, so Jesus spoke to us kindly. As Boaz went beyond the requirements of law all the way to grace, so Jesus has gone, gone beyond the requirements of the law all the way to grace. As Ruth has found favor in the eyes of Boaz, we have found favor in the eyes of Jesus, our glorious Boaz. Our glorious Boaz. Jesus has provided for us. And he's sovereign over every situation you find yourself in. And he is providing something for you even when you don't know it. He is at work behind the scenes and it is only by faith that we can begin to see those things. I would encourage, encourage you to um, begin a relationship with him if you have not already done so. He is pursuing you and he is here for you and he will provide for you and there is always hope when we are in Christ. The harvest is coming. We're going to, um, I think, sing a song and then 
We're going to take part in communion, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. Let's, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today. I thank you for the example that you've given us in Boaz and the provision that you have for us in all of life uh, in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. It's in his name that we find our joy, our satisfaction. It's in his name that we place our faith and our trust. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.